I don't want folks when they come to me to be like, oh, I'm just a problem solver, but how can I empower and support people solving their own problems? So even when they're coming to me, they're already thinking about what are some solutions yeah. and how can I help unlock that versus just solving it. Welcome to the Real Leadership Podcast. My name is Chris Obst. I've spent the last 25 years going deep with leaders on the real challenges they face, the stuff that keeps them up at night. Are you ready for raw and honest conversations and the reality that self-leadership and personal growth are the keys to you being the leader that you were meant to be? Um, so you were talking about this huga, like, like what is it? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So there's, uh, I would like you were interested in this boundless research. I was really interested in this uh, happiness research. Okay. Uh, and so started uh, dive deep into it. We had a number of UBC researches in, in, in it as well, but the data really plays out that uh, in Denmark, the Danes are the happiest people on earth. So there's a lot of like research around like why, what's distinct about their environment? Is it sort of access to nature, health, safety, on all those pieces or indicators, but what they really viewed as the as the big differentiator is Huga. And Huga was sort of the creation of warm atmosphere. So they're really investing time. So they almost do one of the examples they use is that the Danes sell more candles than any other uh, you know, district in Europe in terms of like and that's really an indication that they're investing in creating warm, welcome spaces. So about how do they what's their art? What's the sort of temperature? What's their view? What's their furniture? How are they creating an atmosphere that allows them to relax, be in touch with one another, be in touch with their relationships. So it was just an interesting concept. Right. So you, when you walked in and smelled the pour over coffee, that was, I, I was unintentionally creating this huga. Yeah. The, uh, the pour over coffee and the massive plants. Uh. Right, right, right. Yeah. I got to have that back by five o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> well, Cammy, it's great to have you here. I'm, I'm really glad we reconnected. Um, we were, we were just talking before we got rolling here about, um, you know, my production team wanted to know how we met. It was like this. This was a lot of years ago, um, uh, folks. I've got Cavi Tour with me, who uh, will we'll hear more about him and his role in our relationship. But um, as a formal introduction, Cavi is the managing director of at the University of British Columbia for athletics and recreation. And uh, I mean, that's a big job. And and you've been there a while. So, how, what year did you start at the university? Oh gosh. Uh... I graduated uh, from university in 2001 and had thought at that point was about to embark upon a, a teaching career and sort of see things go down the administrative pathway. And, okay. And then, you know, really was like, was feeling like, I don't know if I really want to do, to do that and took a job for a couple of years in, in recreational sports being like, this will be a bridge. And I felt like I had the bridge of being like, hey, this is fun for a year. I'll do this for another year or two. And then finally, at some point, it became clear to me being like, this is no longer a bridge. I'm actually really interested in this space more than more than the education space. Right, right. And so obviously, and, and we met through a, a mutual friend who you had worked with. Um, did you think then that you were going to be, I mean, I'm assuming not here in this role? How many years later? Yeah, you know, I didn't. I, I and I think this. I often share this story with a lot of students at UBC around career path and career journeys. That you don't know until you experience some things. Is that I, I never would have predicted this career trajectory for me or landing in this position. In fact, it wouldn't have even been on my radar as a career option. Right. Uh, but now I, you know, hear from people being like, "How do I get to? How do I get to where you are as a future career option? I really want to. I really want to be in this space." I'm like, "What?" 
Yeah, some intention and where you want to go is important, but also not being too prescriptive because your experiences will lead you where they lead you. And yes, you need to knock on doors and, and create some opportunities for yourself, but it is really around letting the opportunities and the environment help sort of shape where you're leading to. And if you try to sort of be too prescriptive about it, and maybe may, you may not get there. Right, right. Um, so the scope of your role, you and I were just talking about this, that it's it's a pretty big role and it's kind of unique at UBC. What, what, what does that all entail? Just for a little context for the listeners. Yeah, I'd maybe say four major areas. So uh, the thing that most people are common with are working with our varsity teams. So we have 26 varsity teams, football, basketball, hockey, track, golf, etc. So uh, often it's working with uh, a senior team that helps oversee those sports and helps support them, coaching, development, student athlete services, health, the whole nine yards. Okay. There's a recreational component that involves uh, student health and well-being and intramural activities, um, you know, health and well-being, fitness, personal training, etc. That involves a pretty significant community recreation component because UBC is pretty unique as where we're also a municipality. Right. We're not just there to service the students. So um, that's a pretty unique distinction. The third piece that's also unique is the, I call it the business and community portfolio. So the best way to describe this, I'd say it's uh, concerts and camps. Um, so we had a concert last night, Louis Capaldi uh, at UBC, and we've got 20 over the next uh, 12 months. So wow. pretty significant concert portfolio. Right. Um, and that serves a dual purpose of one, it brings a lot of uh, attention and attraction for students on campus, but also helps elevate the profile of the university and generate some revenue to support those varsity and recreation programs. Yeah. Uh, and the last component is really the facilities and admin components. So this is really, we've got about 3 million uh, square feet of facility space. This is everything from simple things like keeping the spaces clean to building envelope repair to replacing the track to working on our new $66 million rec center that we're constructing now to also the fundraising, the marketing, the finance team component. So it's pretty distinct, but it's also what keeps me really interested and engaged. So it's actually, uh, it's one of the things I love about the role is that there is so much scope yeah, and so many different things to lean in on. Yeah, absolutely. That it sounds overwhelming to me when I think about all those different areas and the dollars and the budgets and the the schedules, like anything that that looks like you know construction, starting and finishing a project on time on budget with all the eyes on you. And you know, I, I know when when I reached out to you to invite you on the podcast, you're like, well, what, what would you want to talk to me about? It's like, well, you've you've navigated a career in what i consider to be a pretty political environment like you know i've, I've worked with lots of different departments at the university and um you know the culture in university is very different than than a lot of private sector clients that i work with and somehow you've managed to always i'd like to describe it as kind of rise above like not get caught in the I don't know. There's just some stuff. We, we see it in the press. We see it. So I guess one of the things I'm curious about is how did you do that? How did you manage to just kind of stay on the right side of the line while you're you know, making a difference and growing your career and having an impact? Yeah, I, I think it's for me, it's development around emotional maturity. And I think I've learned the hard way a couple times early in my career where I would be frustrated and I remember one distinct moment where I was chatting with my uh, boss and mentor at the time and he had tasked me with oversight uh, over this project and initiative and then I soon learned that there was someone else on campus that was also working in that space that I needed to collaborate with and I was kind of 
complaining about being like, well, if I don't oversee it fully, how am I supposed to be able to see it through? Uh, see it through? Like, I can't do that. And, you know, he basically like quite directly said, so if you don't like the rules, you're just going to take your ball and go home. Uh, and it's like almost very directly. And it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, shit, I got called out on uh, on maybe not seeing it. So and for me, I think it was about it's not about me. I think that was the key, key perspective. So there was I reached this career journey about four years ago where the decision was made to combine my role as well as sort of the at that time the athletics director role right into one and to post it i would still be have a position but you know i have the opportunity to either apply for it and sort of see how that played out or also pursue other opportunities so i think for me i had the opportunity in conversations where like wow you know how do you feel about that you know you know that must be sort of unsettling i'm like no it's not about me i mean like if ultimately it's what's best for the university and the organization so be it, you know, right. and I, had, I had also considered if I didn't get that position, then I would pursue other opportunities. So I was in the mix in this role with MLSC in Toronto, that's Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment right. for those folks who are not aligned uh, in the sports world. And uh, I think that that freedom and framing of mind allowed me to also, I got an offer for that position and this position, which was great to have. But yeah. I think it's because I realized it wasn't about, it's not about me, uh, you know, just really like had a different frame of mind. So how, allowed so me to how, unlock. Yeah, how did you get there though? How do you, how like what gave you that mindset that shift? Because I, in my experience interviewing leaders, there's there's there is that point where you go, okay, it's actually about serving others, not serving myself, my ego, my paycheck, my whatever, the, my, the size of my portfolio. Was there a, was there someone uh, like a mentor or a leader that? That gave you that? Did did like was it part of your upbringing? How did that happen for you? That r- ability to let go of ego and say it's not about me. Yeah, I'd say two things. One, uh, there were two books that were pretty uh, pivotal for me. One, uh, Eckhart Tolle. Yep. Uh, and another book called The Coaching Habit. Um, so those those readings really resonated with me about identifying uh, ego, in particular with Eckhart Tolle's work. But The Coaching Habit had really resonated. It's Michael Bungay Stanger. Yeah. It's like a real interesting. I, I know Michael. I've met him, and, and we worked together on. Uh, we did some training together in Toronto years ago. Oh, you did. Yeah, he's a really fascinating guy. He's, yeah. I've had a chance to connect with him indirectly a little bit, and he is a really interesting, interesting guy. But as his uh, his book, and there were some like words in there that were around. You know, when you're leading people, if you're just sort of chomping at the bit and waiting to be like, I know the answer. Let me jump in. And I was like, even just framing up being like, if you were this, and I'm like, oh, that's me being like, I am. I am just waiting to be like to pounce and to give advice and to be like, do this. And I'm like, okay, I need to pause and refrain and take a more coaching mindset. So that was like, I was almost getting called on something to be like, oh, I do that. And that's not good. And I realized, I didn't realize until reading that, that it was a bit of an aha moment for me. And the other aha moment was um, joining the Board of Governors at, at UBC. And so I think this allowed to really zoom out, I call it, I think I read a Chris Hadfield book around the astronaut effect. Is that when you zoom out and view Earth from space, you don't view this as a series of countries and economies. You view it as one. Right. And so I think that really allowed me to sort of not only view UBC as one, but about view education in the post-secondary sector as one. And how do you sort of have that perspective when you're sort of moving things forward? So that was those are probably two of my unlocks that allowed me to think things differently. Uh, than I perhaps would have earlier in my career. Yeah, so when you read a book, you're really paying attention. Sometimes. <laughs> right? Yeah, because that's that's usually both those examples where, you know, you, you read a book and you're able to, to kind of absorb it and, and c- kind of put it on 
try it on in your world and, and apply it sounds like pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, for, and for me, and it's not always the case it's with uh, with books, but sometimes uh, with those two in particular, there was a bit of a, you know, I, a moment when I was reading it when you were like, oh, that's that's me. Yeah. Like, that's, uh, that's, uh, I, I recognize that self, I recognize that awareness of myself being like, that's a bit of a, that's something that I'm doing. It's a bit of a gap yeah. right now. So there's a bit of an unlock. So you've been in a supervisor role and a manager role, like like your, your portfolio has grown and grown where you've got a, you know, you're kind of doing the work and then supervising others doing the work and now, you know, managing people who are managing people who are supervising, like, you know, the, the scope gets bigger and bigger and you get a little further away from the ground, if you will. What do you, what do you find most challenging about, about leading now? Yeah, it's a good question. So the scope of our uh, the, the the role currently is around 140 full time staff and just under a thousand part time staff. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's a big team, uh, and I think the the mindset of not wanting to immediately solve the problem. So often in roles like this, if someone has a challenge and they feel like there's uh, openness and welcomeness for me to sort of to listen and uh, and receive. It's someone comes to me and I've, I know the solution and I can sort of give you a yes or make a phone call. And so often even in meetings, I would previously been like in the meeting be like, oh, let me just call, let me just call so-and-so. We'll solve this for you right now. And feeling like that was good. I was like solving yeah, the problem. You're helping and like, people and yeah. I'm helping people. I'm feeling good about, uh, good about myself. But then I realized that organizationally that that was actually not moving us forward. That what I really needed to do was empower my directors and the leads in their areas to, to, to solve the problems through a systemized approach and through proper process and not sort of creating a, a back end process, which is like being like, because the word gets out, being like, well, actually, don't worry about actually going through the correct channels. Just go serve. Go see Kevin. Go see Kevin. He'll like, he'll give you the answer that you need and he'll like, he'll get the answers for you. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a bit of a moment for me about being like, okay, I really need to shift my perspective and not pounce on, I can solve the problem uh, right away, but uh, take a pause, take a breath, and that's sort of channel that while still trying to be supportive and listen yeah. uh, and say, I hear you, you know, why don't you talk to so-and-so first and I'll talk to them and let me, uh, you know, and see if there's any ways that I can help versus just solving it directly. Right. Yeah. That's a... It's a muscle you almost gotta stop using, right? Because when you like you, you like doing things, getting things done, you like helping others. It feels good to solve something, right? And it, it's also I, a lot of times when I'm working with my clients, like, yeah, we're also getting we're getting something out of it ourselves. It's like you know, we're saving the day. It feels good. Like we're at a stage <laughs> yeah. of of career where we can pick up the phone, and and the, and our peers are people that are in decision making roles. We can kind of make shit happen, and so there's a bit of a I paid my dues and it feels good to do it, but how is it really helping and serving? So what would be, so let's say I'm, I'm a direct report of yours and I, I come to you and say, oh, Kathy, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm stuck here. So, you know, the old way of you saying, well, just here, let me call so-and-so I'll take care of it. How, what would you say to me now? Like what, how, cause you said like, you still got to show that you're invested. Like you're not, you're not just telling them to beat it and figure it out, but in a way you're saying, I want you to figure it out. So what kind of language would you use to me if I was your direct report? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a good one. I think even you resonating, saving the day, that really resonates with me because that does, it does feel good yeah. and it gives you that momentary, uh, you know, hit of dopamine. And, <laughs> and we, then, we all have a cape on at some point and a big S on our chest, right? Yeah. 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 And then realizing that sometimes you're actually not saving the day. <laughs> in fact, it's a more of a short term 
short-term hit. It's like the the bubble gum. It sort of it feels really good to begin with, and then it wears off wears off pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if uh, if you were my report and you were coming to me about sort of solving the problem, I would ask more. I would ask questions first and seek to sort of like to find clarification about you know what's the real challenge for you, um, you know what's stopping you from sort of solving it. But even the language of like yeah. of you, and I think there's I've been. It's been shared with me about taking the monkey, uh, mm-hmm. and that means like taking mm-hmm. the problem. And so earlier in my career, I would sort of give that to me. I'll sort of like let me have the conversation with you're having a, a problem with a challenge or with a colleague over in you know finance. Okay, let me receive that. Okay, let me. I'll have a chat with them and I'll sort of circle back with you. Yeah, that would be my initial instinct. But now, basically, almost like how how can I help you solve it? Uh, more of the question about sort of and so it's really the framing of that I, I don't want folks when they come to me to be like, oh, I'm just a problem solver, but how can I empower and support people solving their own problems? So even when they're coming to me, they're already thinking about what are some solutions yeah. and how can I help unlock that versus just solving it solving it directly. And, and also I think it's a bit of a of, of not wanting to get into the referee mode because mm-hmm. often I found myself in a bit of a pickle being like, you're right, that's... That's they shouldn't have done that. That 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 our finance director made a mistake on that. I'm going to go talk to him and I'm going to correct it. Right. And then of course you talk to the finance director and be like, well, that's not entirely true. I actually said this earlier and didn't <laughs> didn't didn't say no to them, but I said you need to sort of solve this first. And I'm like, okay, well, now I've taken the monkey and now I'm going yeah. back and yeah. now I'm going back again and it's helping no one. Yeah. Uh, rather than sort of building a direct rapport to solve the problem. Yeah, and then you go back to your office at the end of the day and you get 10 monkeys on your back that really aren't yours. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the questions I often ask, and I, I realize you and I haven't really talked about, is you know, you, the leadership that, that you've worked under. And, and you know, always when I have people on, I say, you're welcome to share names or not share names. But if I was to say, you know, it, tell me about the, the best leader that you've worked for and the worst leader you've worked for, and what was it that they did that, <laughs> that earned them that, that label? And, and uh, I guess more importantly is, what was that impact on you, on, on their behavior? So, and you can start with the worst or the best, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but hey. No, it's good, it's a good question. I'll start with, uh, I'll start with the best. Uh, and this is a, a former uh, vice president uh, who I worked under. And I, th- I think was, she was the true definition of mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think she helped role model some of the things I'm talking about in terms of helping me work through problems. Um, so, I took a real coaching development. Wanted to, I felt that she had an investment in seeing me grow and develop, and was really intentional about what can we do to sort of help you grow and develop in these areas. So, it always felt like I had someone I could call and have as a bit of a have as a bit of a resource mm-hmm. but she also wasn't looking to save the day and and solve the problems instantly so uh, I'd say she was the the best boss I, I've, I've had uh, I have a go early in my career in terms of the the worst one and um, it wasn't worse for anything that had happened in particular but more just it was at that point in my career was I wasn't neglect but there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a desire to have regular touch points and I'm someone especially who wants to sort of be like, is this, I'm thinking this as a, as a strategy, thinking of this approach, what do you think? But there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of interest in it. It was like, okay, you do what you need to do. I trust you. 
which I think I would I appreciate now. So it's right, almost right. in the moment of time of being like, I felt like I needed more coaching, mentoring, and support uh, at that point of like, you know, early 20s. Whereas if that was a similar position now, I would say that's an ideal reporting structure to say someone's just like, okay, you, you, do, you let me know when you need my help. Uh, I trust you. But at that point in my career, I was like, I, I need some... I need some coaching. I'm, yeah, I'm, some I'm really hungry for mentoring. I'm hungry for feedback, and I wasn't necessarily getting it. Yeah, that's it. You raise a good point because I think there's a fine line between, you know, giving people enough like time, attention, direction, and then also giving them enough autonomy to 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 add their way of doing things to feel valued. And often when I'm working with with clients around it, and they say, "Well, how do how do I know? Like, how do I know?" Who wants what? Because not everyone's the same, right? You you may want more autonomy than I want. I may need more handholding. It doesn't matter what age I'm at. And, you know, it's not a trick question. The answer is you ask them, right? Yeah. And I know you figured this out to check in with your people. Say, how's this working? What do you need? And I think so often leaders struggle with, they're just trying to guess. Like, I don't know what they want. And I'm constantly working with people who, who are reporting to someone to say, Go advocate for yourself. Like if your if your manager is uh, not, they're skipping your one on ones or not having them, well, then you make it happen. Like it's, you can sit there and suck your thumb and and blame them, but sometimes you've got to condition and train your manager to, to treat you the way you want to, right? So this this manager, the vice president that you worked for, that you know she was supportive. Um, she didn't micromanage you. She gave you enough attention and coaching. What did that feel like for you to to report to someone that that you know you had that relationship with? How did it impact you? Yeah, I felt really good. I felt like I was growing and being stretched mm-hmm. uh, in a way that was new to me. But I also felt like it was in a supportive environment. I also felt like my back was covered, uh, which was nice. It's sort of uh, important to sort of feel that especially if you're taking risks in a new environment and you're doing an organizational shift or you're creating a new strategy and barking upon some new initiatives you want the encouragement uh on it but also to know that if it doesn't go well that you'll have someone who will say like okay great here's how we'll here's how we'll move forward it's okay to make mistakes right um, and it's okay to actually own them and i you know i try to create an environment with the colleagues that i work with uh whether they're colleagues or whether their staff are reporting in to say that Actually, the best thing to do is to take risks, but also to to own them fully uh, as a bit of a as a bit of a, a life lesson. I find that I try to demonstrate that to be like, yeah, that was my that was my bad. And yep. use it as a sport term for being like, from, yeah, from basketball yeah. uh, playing days of being like, you make a bad pass, you just sort of say, yeah, you don't mind. say being like, hey, how, you need to cut over and be like, just my bad. And actually, just uh, it helps even you saying that people are like, oh, okay, great, that's okay for someone to say, I made a mistake. Right. So, right. Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge thing. This leader showing vulnerability, real vulnerability. How, how have you seen in your career? How have you seen leadership change? Because you've been, you know, in the workforce a number of. How old are you now, by the way? Forty five. Okay, so you're you're still on the on the good side of fifty. Yeah. <laughs> so so you've been, you know, twenty five years in in this type of environment. What have you seen uh, in terms of a shift in in leadership style? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think it's it's pretty interesting uh, that you asked that question, Chris, because I'd say I'd maybe reflect upon uh, a recent learning experience I've had in uh, in working with the Musqueam people and sort of the Indigenous colleagues. So the Musqueam is the lands that UBC are on, um, and so I think uh, in that, you know, when I first started engaging with our Musqueam community, I'd I'd come out with a more prescriptive approach 
to how I was uh, how I was going to work with them. So it was agenda and notes and presentation. Uh, and finally, I kind of got the feeling that it wasn't really landing and working with our muscular community. Right. Uh, and I think it's because there was a sentiment that um, there was a bit of a traditional approach, perhaps one would say colonial, about bringing that uh, agenda presentation, sort of a more formalized approach to it right? versus letting it happen organically. Mm. And I think uh, indigenous communities, uh, especially the Musqueam, are really they're, they're more relationship-based uh, and seeking to sort of to listen and learn first versus bringing your goals, ambitions, desires to the meeting. So I think that was a bit of a shift in perspective for me that I really needed to be a better listener. Uh, and I think that was a big piece to sort of like listen first versus talk first. Right. That's probably the, the, the biggest change, especially with the working with a, a younger generation yeah. who has ideas, has energy, and they're not looking to sort of for say that, yes, please tell me what project I, what you want me to do, what your vision is. They wanted to tell you what their vision is and what their ideas and what they want to do. Yep. Um, so I think that was a bit of a shift for me from leadership, but also what I've viewed as the biggest uh, trend difference is that they're not looking for a command and control leader of, here's my vision, here's what I see, I want you to lead this. At times there's a place for that, uh, but often that it is like listening first. And I think it's forged really fantastic relationships to me and not only you know, with the Musqueam and then our, some of our indigenous colleagues, but it's been a shift for me to say, I really need to like listen listen really with meaning yeah and i think it's something you do really well chris that you're always like you're a great listener you're you're picking up on on words phrases on approaches and you know asking more about that and digging in a little bit i think that's really served me well as a bit of a different approach yeah well it looks good on you i think it's very it seems natural and i know in, in hearing you talk about it, it it is something you've learned and adapted which to me, that's what great leadership is. Like, yes, I've got some some God-given gifts and skills and abilities, and I, I need to shift and adapt. What I think is interesting is you you describe like working with the Musqueam and, and, you know, so this First Nations, this culture of, you know, it's community and relationship, get to know each other. And, and, and because you were kind of forced into, okay, how do I make this work? It's clearly not working. You've pulled something out of it that actually applies well to the younger generations in the workforce, right? Yeah. Which... I remember my early days in the workforce, which was like in the 1980s, you you didn't ask, you, you just did what you were told. You didn't question your manager. It doesn't matter what kind of bozo they were. You didn't question them. You didn't bring your ideas. It was yes sir, no sir, three bags full. And you were just trying to do it better than the guy beside you to get noticed, right? Yeah. And it's so, I mean, there's still people like us in the workforce that are trying to you, I mean, we're victims and benefactors of our environment, and we're trying to lead, you know, 20-somethings that way. It's just not flying. Um, what What would you say? So, I mean, you're talking about 140 employees? Yep. In terms of generationally, have, have you learned, what have you learned around, okay, well, the, the youngest set, the, you know, millennials and younger looking for this, and the people closer to you, how, how would you describe some of the differences and I, I'm always careful not to stereotype because we're not we're all somewhat different, but there are definitely some trends there. Any any nuggets around that that you've learned? Yeah, I, I would say um, uh, it's interesting because even within that 140 staff, we've sort of spanned the ages from 18 to mid 60s. So we got quite the range, and some people who have been in uh, at the university in their roles for uh, you know 20 plus years, and some who've you know, who are in their first year. 
Uh, and so I think there's often this this growing tension, I would say, between people who are saying, tell me your, tell me your vision, tell me what success looks like, uh, and I want to know so I can sort of work towards that and succeed. Right. And there's a whole generation of being like, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I need to, I need to own it. And so there's often these opposing forces, I would say 25% on either side uh, on the being like, I want you to be more directive and declarative around uh, your goals, our goals, where our department's heading and 25% of being like, you know, if you do that, I'm really turned off. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think as I've tried to learn through this and we're just doing a bit of a strategic update currently is that to really involve people in the process so their voices are heard, they're contributing, they're helping shape uh, some of the pieces, but we're also shifting is that we're shifting to more declarative goals, but they're not ones that I'm being prescriptive about. I'm listening and engaging and trying to land on a particular approach uh, on it. But there's a tension there, there's no doubt. I feel like anytime that we land on a direction that there's going to be that 25% who are perhaps not going to be pleased with the approach because they're like, I prefer it be more this or more that. Right. And you can't please everyone all the time, right? As yeah. they say. Um, <laughs> you get to a stage where you realize that mistakes we made turn into lessons and if we learn from them we we grow and we get better i'm wondering if there's any uh mistakes that stand out for you that that you've made like do-overs uh that you're comfortable sharing like you know when it's one of the things that when, when i get feedback around this podcast people love hearing those stories because back to this idea of being vulnerable i mean the people i invite on are leaders and there's a point in our life where we're trying to create this illusion of perfection and we've got it all and never let them see a sweat. So yeah, any any blunders, mishaps, it's like, oh God, I'm still embarrassed to think about it and it was a great lesson. Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. I'd say uh, one that's from re fairly recently is that uh, we had a, a staff member director leave and this in our current structure, we have two varsity directors that oversee the varsity teams. Of course, half our teams are men's teams, half our teams are women's teams. Right. And, uh, and of course, I've got a role overseeing the department, also a male. And so it was really intentional in the early when that transition happened to being like, we really need a sort of a, a female leader. And so I embarked upon a process and started talking to folks and saying, we're actually going to be bold and brave. And we're going to say, we're only hiring a female leader in this director role. Because that's what an organization needs. We're about equity. We're going to back it up in this decision making. Uh, and we're going to be real intentional. And that's going to help attract a stronger candidate. So was really going down this path, was chatting with colleagues, chatting about the approach. And I conducted a bit of an internal listening exercise and I could sense there was, there, there it wasn't resonating, but especially our female leads. I'm like, I'm not, I, I was trying to dig into me like, what is, what is, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Right, yeah. um, I'm taking uh, you know a bit of bravery and saying this role is just gonna be open for female leads. And finally I had a bit of an unlock with one of our, with one of our female staff leads being like, well, you know what, I, I don't know if that's the best approach. And so I was digging in, asking why, 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 why? And they, you know, the answer that I heard is that if you do that, they're always gonna be known as an equity hire. Mm. And that female lead's never gonna gain the respect of senior, senior tenured male coaches. They're never gonna receive organizational uh, respect. Yeah, we think hiring female lead is the right decision, but we think you should hire them because they're the best person for the job. Right. Not because you're trying to make a statement uh, about your organizational value. So I was headed down one path. I was like barreling down, like, you know, 
heading down the autobahn of this one path and it was like a bit of like oh shit am i like this could be a real severe mistake where it could uh, it could risk our environment reaping of tokenism to say like we're just trying to check a box uh and then organizationally there would be sort of being like oh this person's only hired because of x y and z right so it caused a big shift for me so i i really changed my focus and intended to recruit really aggressively with female leaders knowing that from talking to other female leaders they said you might have to actually call people and set up times and encourage them in a different way because what we've learned is that you know female leaders often will look at a role and be like ah oh, you know I'm, I'm not really qualified i don't meet that criteria whereas some male leaders would be like yeah i'm definitely qualified i can do that job <laughs> Classic. and they may be equally qualified right so some so i think I, I took the point of like really aggressively recruiting using the adage that you know, good female leaders know other good female leaders. So went on like call, call, call. And I did it directly because I didn't want to hire the headhunter uh, side of things. So it felt disingenuous. Right. So uh, it ended up being a good story. And we've this got this female leader in our environment. She's doing amazing work. Uh, she's got the respect. She's doing a fantastic uh, job. But I very easily could have gone down the wrong path and been, and it could have, you know, failed spectacularly. But that was like a, a lesson learned. I've been like, don't, you know, walk before you run where I was, you don't, you don't go too far and thinking you're doing something right before actually talking to, to people in your organization to say, is this the right decision? And so that was a, a lesson for me. Well, and, and, you know, big props to you for, for being willing to ask, to check in, you know, something doesn't look right here, like to, to be open to hear it. And obviously, you know, most subordinates or people around you don't want to just say, oh no, boss, you're going down the wrong path. So you, you probably had to probe a bit and dig a bit to get them there. Um, and and, it, and I think it just speaks to the complexity of what leadership is now, like politically, and you know we're just waking up to so many things that we are blind to, and and you have to hold that as a leader, you have to be aware of, of all of that. Um, so yeah, it's it's good to it's good to hear your uh, kind of take on God. What what would have happened if I didn't you know if I didn't do this, Kevin? Clearly, you have a big job with lots of responsibilities. I know you sit on a board or two, or you have, and you've got a young family. Uh, you know, um, one of my pet topics is this idea of, of people sustaining their energy, managing their energy, keeping a healthy work-life effective balance. What do you do? Like, how are you doing that? You're obviously staying fit. You're, you know, you've got good relationships around you. You're thriving. What have you learned along the way? And what are you doing to kind of manage all that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I... I don't think I figured out uh, that I'm still very much in the process of doing it. And um, I think what I'm trying to figure out currently is how do I get more intentional with my time, hours and days? Sometimes I feel like I'm I'm chasing uh, and maybe over committing. Uh, you know, this may be over committing to work evening events uh, mm -hmm. to say, yes, I want to help. I want to be there for. Uh, you know, that um, uh, varsity team, I want to be there for the national championship. I want to be there for that reception and celebration. I want to attend that event and show my coach the support. But I also want to be there for uh, my kids. I want to coach their sports. I'm coaching a number of their teams as well. And I want to fit in fitness. I want to play beer like hockey. I want to see my friends. Um, and I want to spend some time with my wife uh, as well. So often at times I find uh, that I'm, I am chasing a bit and I'm making adjustments on the fly to be like, hey, I need to go and work later here so I can fit in a, uh, I can fit in a workout. I need to sort of uh, adjust this so I can be like, maybe I'll back out of that commitment. 
but often I'd say it's sometimes a bit after the fact. Right. I've got a bit of a plan, then I'm like, I realize, oh, it's too much. I need to actually back out. Right. So I'm trying to find a way, and this is just real time, so I'd say I'm not at all haven't figured it out that I'm trying to figure out. Maybe you, Chris, you can give me some advice on it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I may know a coach who could help you. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of the lessons that you know, you've taught me in an earlier coaching career about renewal and energy management and taking breaks and physical activity and taking breaths and all those things really, really work uh, for me. But often I find myself looking at my schedule being like, okay, great. I have that you know, coaching Wednesday night. Okay. I have that event Thursday night. Okay. I've got to speak at that event Friday. Then I got to attend that Friday night. Then I'm coaching Saturday morning. Then I want to figure, figure out how to fit in a workout. Then I, and so often I'm often find in the moment I'm trying to make adjustments and I'll make them, but it'd be heck of a lot easier if I could plan out well in advance. And I find just the challenges that with an evolving and ever-changing environment, like the sense of routine isn't there. Like I find mm-hmm. I really like getting into a regular routine. Like I don't have a regular routine where I have a regular wake-up time, but sometimes I want to get a bunch of work done in the morning versus fitting in a workout. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I had a late night because it was a an event the night before. And really what's best for me is sleeping a little longer because sleep's so important yeah. uh, that I won't sort of wake up on that regular time. So I would say I haven't had that piece figured out. In fact, it's something that I'm, that I'm working on in a pretty significant way to figure out, okay, I need to I need to get ahead of it versus always making week-to-week adjustments. Yeah, well, so here's a question for you is, are you hardwired more to be more like regimented, militant, and routine? Or are you more hardwired to kind of go with the flow and and adapt to the needs and demands around you, which would you say? Yeah, I'm definitely hardwired to go with the flow. Yeah. You know, I definitely have the a joke with uh, my 11-year-old daughter that she's got my FOMO. Um, so when something comes up, being like, hey, uh, you know, even though I asked it was mid-year, uh, I was asked to help out uh, coach my youngest son's five-year-old hockey team. They're like, oh, you've coached hockey before. We're really struggling. And I said right away, yes, I'll do it. I'm in. <laughs> my wife was like, what are you doing? They're like, <laughs> Uh, when do you expect to figure this out? When do you expect to actually do this? Being like, you, right. have, no, you have no time and yet you've took something out. But I thought, oh, I'm miss out an opportunity to sort of be on the ice with my son. That sounds pretty cool. And they're they're in a moment of need. So yes, I'm in. But often I, I do so without thinking about some of the other impacts. So I think, you know, I am in going with the flow, but I need to sort of pull myself in a bit and to be a bit more regimented and a bit more intentional with my time uh, yeah. versus just wanting to be like the immediate response is yes let's do it that's important i want to support either thing for work either for one of our you know our varsity teams or one of our rec programs or whether it be for you know something kid related yeah one of the strategies so you know it's interesting because 10 years ago i I would have felt very prescriptive about, I would have wanted to jump in and fix what you say is not working. And what I've learned is that we're not all the same. And I look at you and I listen to you and I experience you and I say, actually, dude, I think you're doing it. I think you're, you are managing all these, you know, your your reputation at the university is, you know, top notch and how you're caring for your family and your own well-being. And yes, I'm, I'm sure there's a sense of you could be doing better or more. But I think if you had like a very strict 
regimen that you had to follow and lots of clients that I have to do that I don't think that would work for you That's and I point. think it would be very restrictive I think part of the joy you get in life and part of the reason you love this job is because of the competing demands and the diversity of needs and and there's excitement there's a big event and then there's you know ebbs and flows and and so I think um maybe cut yourself some slack is, is, what, is what I would say <laughs> Thank you, and man. acknowledge. And I think there's room for all of us as we develop in our careers and our lives to be okay with saying no. Right. Saying no to people that we love, that we care about, that we're here to serve. And no is not because we don't care. It's actually because we do. And we know that we only have so much capacity, right? So so to, to learn to say no with more grace and, and, and know that you're you're doing it for the right reason. I think that's that's probably worth taking on. That's probably a, a new muscle for you um, to, to develop, right? Because the, the you know I'm I'm listening to all the places like the, all the different um, sports that fall under your umbrella. They've all got something happening, and it's all exciting. And then you've got three kids, and you've got a spouse, and you've got yourself, and you get your friends. And it's like anyway, I really appreciate you sharing that, and I know that my listeners um, it resonates with them because it, you know the, I feel guilty sometimes when when I look at. At my life and you know I'm 59 my kids are raised I work for myself I don't have events to go to I feel kind of like I said guilty and lucky but I, I have lived that life and and I know it's harder now because the demands come at you in different ways just through technology and whatnot so yeah I, I would say uh, you should give yourself a pat on the back and and I know you're a you're a lifelong learner so you'll you'll keep challenging yourself um, the other thing I was wondering about is is just in terms of this is a you know I I try not to ask the same questions, but there's a few questions that I tend to ask most of my guests. And this one about, you know, what have you learned? So if you were to go back and, you know, you're 45 now, say, you know, what, what advice would you have for a 30-year-old caviar? Like, um, yeah, what what suggestions if 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 Kevy was trying to get his life the where he wanted to be, just the way he wanted? What would you say? What lessons have you learned? That what wisdom could you impart? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I would say. My 45-year-old self responding to my 30-year-old self would be always trust your values. Um, and maybe I'll sort of share a couple of insights to it. It's actually my favorite interview question to ask. And it's my last one after they ask questions. They're like, one more question for you. What do you value? And I, I'm not actually judging them in terms of what they value or not. I just want to know that they know what they value. Right. And sometimes it's a bit of a, a pause for like, well, well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean? What I value? And I'm like, you should know what you value. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't require questions. People like, you mean in work and home? I mean, like, just what do you value? You you choose. Right, right. Uh, and so it's a it's a key for me being like, if someone doesn't necessarily know what they value, doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. Or they're not going to do good work. Is that they haven't reached the self awareness enough to sort of know why they're doing what they're doing. Why are they applying for this job? Why do they want to work right. here? Um, they're kind of like maybe it's a more of an opportunity than something that is truly something they value or have some interest in. Um, so, but also is like real for me. Sometimes I uh, I find you know uh, that I'm not trying to um, play a game or like try to like strategize or manipulate in terms of whether it's like uh, getting more resources for my organization, sort of like cutting a deal with like a partner or uh, or booking a large event. Or whether it's on my own career advancement, it'd be like just just align with your values. Don't try mm. too hard in terms of to manipulate, adjust, cajole, being like, if you trust your values, you'll get there. And I've had examples where I've given bosses or supervisors what I thought they wanted here that aren't my values. To be like, yeah, I think I think I think my boss wants to tell me that I should need to be more 
decisive and cutthroat. So I'm going to recommend that we need to fire this person. When in fact, I actually didn't want to do that. I wanted to give him a, give him a second shot. And then later on, learning being like, that was a mistake. I, you know, I didn't give them the necessary second shot and I'm seeing them grow and thrive in a different career. But thinking that that's what someone else wanted me to do. So I'm going to do that because I'm a people pleaser by instinct. Uh, I wasn't trying to manipulate the situation at that point, just knowing myself and be like, I really want to please that person. And I think that's what they want me to say. So I'm going to say and recommend this Yeah. versus getting back and be like, no, this is actually what I believe in. Here's my recommendation. You might disagree and that's okay. There's a confidence that comes with just spending time on the planet, right? And and I think that's the thing when we're in our 20s and 30s, we're all, we don't, we just want to give the world the right people, whether it's a client or a boss or whoever, the version of us that we think they want. And then I guess what you're describing is you've, you know, over the years learned to just go, okay, this is who I am. This is what matters to me. And I'm going to just say it, right? It's kind of liberating, isn't it? Yeah, it is liberating. And I think just that trust your values as being, being authentically you, uh, you know, is certainly another way of, of framing it and even as I step into this if I stepped into this role where I'm supervising uh, varsity teams and working with high performing coaches there's there's a bit of an archetype in that in that role <laughs> yep. uh, about you know like ever people when I started being like yeah you know I had I, I loved it. I had my previous boss I had beers in the parking lot after and we'd sort of talk about talk about the game uh, and say you know the, and I'm happy to sort of pontificate about being like you know what if you know, you should have run a nickel defense or you should have been like, <laughs> what about sort of well, running more run play options? But being like, you know, that's not that's not where I'm needed. That's not where my expertise is uh, is best served in the organization. So I'm not going to follow the the archetype of being like, I know I've got a different skill set. It may not be the same skill set that predecessors have had. So just leaning into that and not not apologizing to that where I would feel like I'd want to evolve my skill set and approach to be what people want me to be and I still have that instinct no doubt but recognizing being like this is where I think my team my colleagues my staff my family you know are best served by me being authentically who I am and contributing where I feel like I can versus where I think they want me to be (laughs) yeah yeah such good advice and I wonder how a 30 year old would even hear it or take it Right, and and this is not slamming thirty year olds that are listening here, uh, but but it is. There, there, I think there's something the, the the wisdom that comes with this emotional maturity that you just got to pay your dues, right? Um, what's next for you? I mean, you're a young guy still. Like, do you have um, in terms of career aspiration, and obviously share what you what you're comfortable with or or not? What, do you have a vision of what you know the next sort of ten ten years might look like? Yeah, yes and no. So uh, yes, in the way that I've really learned over the last five years, uh, really stretched myself in terms of boards. So I had a chance to start out with um, you know, volunteering on some PSOs. Uh, it was Tennis BC and sort of helped uh, contribute in strictly volunteer role, really loved it, leaned in in different ways, and subsequent have sort of served on about another six boards. Uh, and I've learned things along the way, the most significant one being the UBC Board of Governors, where it was really, it's a, four billion dollar enterprise that i was asked to chair a number of different committees and so play a pretty significant role yeah uh but but realizing uh through experience of being like you know how can you contribute and make these meaningful 
meaning, meaningful change in these roles. And I kind of feel like I've been able to figure out a few things along the way. By no means am I an expert, but I feel like I've, I feel like I can contribute uh, in being around these sport tables. That wouldn't have been anything I would have thought I would have any interest in 10 years ago. Right. I'd be like, be like, no way, that sounds boring to me. But I feel like I'm super interested in this space around sort of org dynamics around board, how to sort of uh, shape a strategic direction while still really working with the role of a board in terms of not uh, not sort of overstepping the scope and boundaries, but finding a way through sort of strategy, through questions, through sort of like encouragement and support, whatever is needed to move in a particular way. Right. So I think that's a, a space that I'm interested in growing and expanding in, uh, in boards. Certainly I feel in the current role, like uh, very fulfilled and, uh, but that being said, you know, you know, I would always be willing to, if I can contribute in additional ways, but you know, now I'm, I'm very interested and motivated to sort of stay and see, see the, the path forward in the current uh, career trajectory, but boards is an area that I'm interested in progressing in. That's exciting. Um, I, I mean, we should probably prepare to wrap up. I know you've got a meeting to go to. I, I want I want to thank you for being here and and um, and for you and for listeners to put up with. We had a little background noise there uh, outside the home studio here. There's some construction happening, but um, be, before we wrap up, Cavi, um, I would have a question for you. Uh, what do you value? <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> good. Push that. Push that back on me. I value relationships, um, integrity, uh, and so I think. Integrity is a simple one for me. It means, you know, do what you say you're going to do. Um, and to my earlier point about be authentically who you are uh, and also value innovation. And then, you know, innovation can be a bit of a buzzword, but what does that mean? It means being ability to take risk of being willing to be to be creative. Well, uh, Cavi, I, I can tell you, I know it's been years since we've seen each other, but I, I just need to acknowledge, I always thought you were a class act. Like I met you, you were kind of young in your career, and now you've got this emotional maturity and, and sort of uh, grace that you carry. Uh, so um, yeah, real pleasure to have you here. I'm sure the, the listeners are going to enjoy listening to you and your story. I'm, I'm glad we reconnected. I think, uh, you know, um, I'd like to stay in touch and 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 uh, maybe get out for some some recreation get you away from the job and the family and whether we're hitting a tennis ball or a golf ball or a hockey puck it'd be be great to get to get out there so uh, thank you for being here and and, and uh, taking the time it's been a real pleasure yeah thanks so much chris i really enjoyed the chat and you know certainly um my growth and my continued growth is uh is a lot um there's a lot of layers around saying that mentors and coaches support you and you were my first coach so i you know i mean i was sort of share that that i good colleague of mine was who I never thought coaching was a real thing and I was like well that sort of sh almost shows weakness versus strength right. but when a really strong leader said they're they're having a coach and the coach was you and they're like oh maybe maybe this isn't something that is showing weakness of needing support but actually is something that uh, shows strength that you're willing to sort of reflect and grow but ever since uh, I worked with you as a coach I've actually had a coach all along the way not always but you know I've I've had the ability to sort of like to, you know, lean into different people. So, you know, thanks for sort of having that initial uh, first good experience. Because if it wasn't good, I probably wouldn't keep it going. <laughs> yeah, well, it was my, my pleasure for sure. So thanks again for being here. Great. Thanks, Chris. The Real Leadership Podcast is produced by Chris Obst Leadership and Alive Creative Services. Thank you for listening.